welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Margo, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm also doing well. I am hunkering down, preparing for another nor'easter. Oh, you and me both. Right? I oh. think Mother Nature just hates us. <laughs> you know, it's kind of unfair when you work from home like I do, mm-hmm. because everyone around you is all excited for a snow day, and my day is exactly the same, except <laughs> now everyone else is in my way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't I don't get the benefits of a snow day that everyone else raves about. I I think I like snow days a lot more when I was like I was a kid because now when a snow day happens it means I have to shovel the walkway and like there's like a lot of management things that I have to do when yeah. I'm home because the city is like hey get your stuff out like go move your car <laughs> get out of the way so we can clear the sidewalk so it's I prefer it just not to snow because yeah. my life is easier when it doesn't snow. Yeah, yeah, there's work, there's work. There is, there's additional work. I'm like, oh, I hate this, this sucks. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter about it now or anything. Right. <laughs> so I've spent some time on your sites. Talk to me a little bit about your inbox booty call. Oh, the inbox booty call. So mm-hmm. I have this problem where mm-hmm. I feel like I have to respond to every incoming request on my time. Mm-hmm. So whether that is, oh, my goodness, it was so nice to meet you at this conference. Um, let me send you an email. We should connect. Or every response to my emails that go out. I have an email list that I uh, email each week. Mm-hmm. Uh, or so-and-so thinks you should meet so-and-so. Y'all should connect. Um, or the million other uh, useless things in my inbox. And not just my email inbox. It's the LinkedIn in- inbox, it's my Facebook inbox, it's my Twitter inbox, and I, I felt like I was on this rat race of needing to constantly keep up mm-hmm. with the inbox and ch- not even chasing inbox zero, just trying to to actually respond to real humans because there are real humans on the other side. Um, and so I uh, I got so frustrated one day, I coined the term inbox booty call because I had read somewhere that your Email inbox is a convenient organizing tool for other people's agendas. And that sobered me up. I was, (laughs) oh, maybe this is why I get nothing done. I am so busy being busy Mm -hmm. and mistaking that with being productive or actually getting things done. And when I looked at my to-do list versus how I was spending my time, I was spending the majority of it being reactive to other people's requests. Well-meaning. Everyone is well-meaning. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I really thought you should read this article. Hey, check this out. Um, but every single thing in my inbox is a request on my time. And I have had to work on giving myself permission to be rude or shut it down. And that's what made me think it was like a booty call. Yeah. Uh, someone who texts you at 3 a.m. like, you up? Like, you don't have to respond to that. <laughs> like, 
respond to it if you want to have some good meaningless sex at three in the morning, like to each his own for sure. But know what you're getting into. Don't expect breakfast in the morning. Don't expect like to hang out later. Don't expect him to ask you on a date. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's the same kind of thing here. If I'm responding to people in my inbox, why would I think that they're going to respect my time later? If I'm responding immediately, if I'm responding with a really lengthy um, answer, if I'm, uh, you know, going out of my way to help them, mm-hmm. why should I expect that they're going to reciprocate? Why should I expect that they're going to ask for less next time? <laughs> <laughs> I have set myself up as the person who responds to an inbox booty call. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's what I wrote about. That's nice. So I, it was, a, again, a very well done article. So. Because of your now new obsession with with inboxing, I'm and part of the conversation we had before this. So I'm curious: Do you have certain like reply rules? Is there? Because I also because I just mentioned yeah. a new writing style I have adopted specifically because of emails. Like, are you short to the point? Do you batch your emails so they're like sent at two o'clock in the morning so that nobody's gonna reply <laughs> instantly? How do you organize yeah. your emails then with your newfound no booty call? Yeah, um, I fail a lot. <laughs> um, I've, I've I've tested different things, and uh, I I wish I was the person who had canned responses mm-hmm. and could go through. So my husband is like a whiz at emails. He does the short one liner that moves the ball down the field, and he's always at inbox zero. It's unbelievable, and he gets three times as many emails as me a day. Yeah. I am not like him. So the only thing that has worked for me. Uh, is batching. And I'll tell you why, because there are tend to be two different types of emails. And as someone who self identifies as a writer, mm-hmm. taking away responding with the written word is actually not fun for me. I enjoy long emails. I enjoy threads. Um, what I don't enjoy is the back and forth of using it as I am mm-hmm. or or uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, giving the time of day to someone who doesn't deserve it um, just because they asked. So it was more about determining what pieces of my inbox weren't responses. So I have, I, I don't know if I would call it a system, but I have a filter mm-hmm. that I use um, for what's allowed to take up my time. So friends and family, mm-hmm. um, and depends on the types of friends and family and the things that they need, right? Like my mother <laughs> is the queen of forwarding dumb, stupid stuff. And I don't respond to her emails anymore. Yeah. Like, just don't respond to her emails. And I don't read anything that she said. That's just a policy. If mom sends you an article, you do not read it. Right? Um, but then I have, I have certain friends that always send really great and interesting emails. So I will, um, I will save them and I will batch them into, uh, do you, uh, there's an app called Pocket. Mm-hmm. that you use that will allow you to save uh, links that you want to read later. Mm-hmm. So I will add them to Pocket and uh, save them to read later. So part of it has just been training myself to not believe that just because something's in my inbox, I have to respond immediately to it. Mm-hmm. It's not imminent. Like if I respond in three weeks to having read this article, then that's when that will happen. Yeah. So enduring the discomfort of not being immediately available would be part of my system. Um, and then to your question, my team. So my team, I try and be pretty immediate with. So if anyone on my staff asks a question or has something they need, um, I work really hard to make sure I respond to them. But they also know if I don't respond that they can like they need to get a hold of me in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but batching has worked the best, like having email off. So I don't have auto refresh on my phone. I don't have a number on my phone. Like I actually will have no idea if I got any new emails. Um, and I often have my phone off in the morning when I'm doing work mm-hmm. um, and I turn it on and I will say like you have an hour and in the next hour you're answering all your emails. Don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. So I've gone the similar way of at least I've turned off the notification part because if if my phone dings or if I look at the screen and I see a number, like the the little numbers bother me and I have to click through to make it go away. And sometimes that means email or like something stupid from an app that I haven't used in 10 years. But suddenly (laughs) if it flashes, I'm like, oh, my God, it's like visually it bothers me and I have to make it go away. So I have to to turn all of those notifications off. My phone is – actually even on silent all the time and it's upside down for most of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. that. Yeah. But you know, the, the not having notifications and that those disruptions uh, makes a really huge difference in your efficiency and getting through Mm -hmm. the backlog. But also um, I think letting go of the need to reciprocate was a bigger lesson for me in terms of an inbox booty call. Like I used to feel like just because someone emails me a really long email about their life story mm-hmm. that I needed to respond with an equal length and uh, empathy and lessons learned and begin the dialogue and take their bid for friendship. And now it's difficult because the more I've become a bit of a, I'm not totally a public figure, but have more of a platform. Like, you get a lot of fans and you get a lot of really amazing people and amazing stories. But if I responded to all of them at, at length, it would be, I mean, it would be my full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, so you learn to skim, you learn to be efficient with your responses and also only responding to things that need to be responded to. Um, that was a hard one to learn. So like sometimes people ask like six questions in an email. That's not an efficient way mm-hmm. to have an email. Like, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> And you don't need to respond to all of them, like mm-hmm. m- making efficiency part of how you filter the way you respond or not responding mm-hmm. like this is actually an option, um, <laughs> which, which like shocks me because I would never. Um, and now sometimes I'm like, OK, that person didn't ask a question. They didn't offer to help with anything. There was no call to action. Therefore, I read it. It's fine. We're moving on. <laughs> I like that. So you mentioned before about writing. So how do you describe yourself and what you do these days? Oh my goodness. If I had an answer to that, (laughs) you know, my, my mother actually started telling people, I don't know what she does, but she doesn't ask me for money. (laughs) 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 That actually might use that. Yeah. Uh, Put it on the business card. Doesn't ask her mother for money. Um, so, no, I, I run a virtual co-working space for solopreneurs with online businesses and uh, virtual companies. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are a network and a community of people all over the United States. And now uh, globally, we have a few international members nice. uh, that are all uh, treading the line between business owners, creatives, uh, plat- uh, content creators, uh, but all all unified by the fact that um, we're selling something mm-hmm. um, and uh, don't have coworkers, aren't seeking VC funding. Um, it's a very specific type of service-based business mm-hmm. and solopreneurship. Excellent. So that is a little bit different from what you went to school for. Oh, so, yeah. So 
I guess let's start from a little bit in the beginning there. What what did you originally go to school for, and what got you interested in traveling down a, a career in writing before moving on to something a little different? Oh, sure. So, so I was a literature major in undergrad, mm-hmm. and like everyone will tell you, what are you going to do with that? Um, <laughs> And I I was sure that I was going to end up in media. It had a lot of internships in media. And I couldn't, around graduation, actually, let's just say it differently. For me, creating a skill was really important. Cultivating a skill was important, which is part of why I wanted to be a literature major. I wanted the ability to write, and I saw that as applicable to whatever I wanted it to be applicable to. Um, and so it felt not, it, it wasn't limiting to me. It was very much expansive. But when I graduated, I got really nervous, like everyone does, mm-hmm. and uh, ended up making a shift into psychology. After I graduated from college, I took a position as a research assistant in a mental health lab. And uh, I loved research. It was one of my favorite parts of being a writer, um, taking the time to find information, create a hypothesis, make an argument, use words to... Uh, state a case and change someone's perspective mm-hmm. or behavior. Um, and so I felt like psychology was really a natural fit for that. And so uh, I was in this lab and I was watching as people were coming in. Uh, we did a, a depression and anxiety studies and I was in charge of retention and recruitment. Mm-hmm. So part of my job was effectively advertising, but I didn't know it at the time. So uh, people would tell me, oh, you got to put out this ad. You have to put out this flyer. We were offering free treatment. And for my life, Yuri, I couldn't get anyone to get in. <laughs> I didn't. And I, I, I became obsessed with this question of how do you get people to act in their own best interest? Mm-hmm. And I went to graduate school for this. And I, I didn't feel like the academy was actually making the impact in answering this question that I, that I wanted. And we can talk about that. In a different way. I thought I was going to be an academic. I'd, okay. I, and in many ways, in my experience, the academy is where writing goes to die. But <laughs> it was, it, it ended up opening up a new world, which was marketing. And mm-hmm. that wasn't something I had studied. I knew nothing about business. If anything, I was turned off by it. It was below me, mm-hmm. right? Like if you have a background in the liberal arts or the sciences or academia, Um, sort of the unspoken truth is that you are on this moral high ground and everyone who cares about commerce is self-involved, is this evil, afflicted corporation that only cares about profits and doesn't actually contribute to social good. Mm -hmm. And you are morally superior as a result. And so it's just it's just sort of the baseline that we start with. Right. I know that's an empathy laugh. I know you're it is. I listen. I totally did that and felt the same way through. I think up until grad school. So like undergrad as a, I went from um, writer. Well, I wanted to be a journalist, but I switched over to theater and was like, then took a bunch of painting classes and same kind of stuff. It was like, if you made money originally from your paintings and stuff, you sold out in some kind of way that yeah. you had to feel deeper and suffer a little bit yes because that's where creativity came from well let's talk about that because this this money realization was a huge turning point for me okay so i um i was in graduate school Mm -hmm. and i had i had 
prided myself effectively on being poor, right? Like this was a badge of honor. Um, I didn't really know it. Like I couldn't have told you this and articulated it at the time, but it was like, we all were wearing this as badges of honor. Like, oh, I, I don't make that much because I don't care about the money. That's, that's the story we tell ourselves. And we would often even use that language when we were looking for jobs. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what it makes. Like, what is the credential that I can add to my resume? Um, what is the prestige that other people will see either in the arts or sciences or academic community? And I, um, I was in graduate school. I remember thinking I am so friggin' tired of being poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm tired of feeling so disempowered. And I also had this sneaking suspicion that there was this game being played around me that everyone else understood how it worked, but no, no one told me. And so I started educating myself. I just put myself on my own curriculum of reading books about money and personal finance and business. And, um, it was related to my newfound interest in marketing, mm-hmm. uh, because of my academic interests of like, how do you change behavior? And it turns out where all these worlds collided for me was there was a very clear path that you could make words change behavior. And that was the field of marketing, mm-hmm. except it's always been sold to me as this is how you get people to buy things they don't need. And right. this is what evil people do. And when I learned that it was the art of persuasion and it could actually be used to empower the good, mm-hmm. I sold because I loved words to begin with. So this was very exciting to me. And then on top of that, um, the, the, the introduction to a new way of thinking about money and not having it be this evil demon and sort of demystifying what it meant to take care of yourself, to have, um, to be able to support yourself, to, to improve my relationship with money and not always be in this place of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, because the one thing that I did, that I did learn, and I was getting back to this with the, with the turning point for me is, um, when you're underpaid for what you love, you begin to resent it. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that they tell you. You become bitter. And so there are a lot of artists and there are a lot of academics who will claim and fall for this narrative of like, I suffer for my art, but it actually makes your art worse. It makes you an intolerable human. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I wasn't happy with myself. I was, I was becoming an intolerable human. I was, I was not liking the patients we were working with. I was mean to my boyfriend at the time. who's now my husband. Like I wasn't the best version of myself because you, it's like your oxygen mask. You have to put it on first. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you when you pretend to devalue money, and that's what I will call it, it's pretending because everyone it, we live in a capitalistic society, whether you like it or not. Like we can we can have a separate discussion on whether that's the right choice. Right. Like that that's fair. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, it is. So you can choose to deal with that reality and be a player on the stage. Mm-hmm. Or you can deny it and then be unhappy and underpaid and undervalued and constantly resentful for people not appreciating you. Mm-hmm. You touched a little bit on a scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. Could you go a little more detail on how you approach scarcity versus abundance mindsets and, yes. and how you've shifted to the, the latter? Yes, it's. I wish I could tell you it was one aha moment that I can share, but it's, uh, it was a long work in progress of mm-hmm. years and years and years of one 
defining what that is. So for me, scarcity means not enough. So it was operating from the place of constantly being not enough, whether it was we don't have enough money, there will not be enough money, there's not enough opportunity, there's not enough room at the top, Mm. uh, there's not enough to go around, like this, this, this fear mongering that would go on in my head about not enough, not enough, not enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas the abundant mentality is more like, I'll make money, there'll be more. You know, there, there, there's, there's plenty to go around. You know, if I'll give you a more concrete example of what it meant for me. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the arts world, it would be like, oh, this person won this award. And therefore, uh, my life is screwed because they won this award. And that's the only thing that matters. And now I'm just going to get chlamydia and die. Right? <laughs> Those are your... Those are your options. That's the pretty extreme options, but yeah, I, I get you. <laughs> <laughs> I think all good lessons come from themselves. Yeah. But the 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 abundant mentality would be like, oh, good for that person. They won an award. There's plenty more awards. I'll apply to a different one. It's a lot healthier in terms of your outlook on life, your quality of life, and your mental health. And so um, for me, it was one identifying that I even had this mindset in the first place. Um, I had no idea, but I. I, I started to see it when I would hang around people mm-hmm. who didn't have it, who didn't have scarcity in the way that they operated. And that I would say or it was the biggest game changer for me oh, is that nice. I shifted my uh, my group of friends, mm-hmm. both professionally and personally. And I wanted to be around people who weren't constantly victims of their own circumstance, mm-hmm. who would turn around and say, OK, I don't like this, but what can I do to change it? And yeah. that was very much an abundant mentality versus um, the friends that I had to use fitness for an example. I had a lot of friends who would be like, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. And then they would sit and smoke and watch TV all day and then nothing would change. Right. right? Like that is a scarcity mentality of uh, that, that wasn't really healthy for me. So yeah. I just cheated the system by surrounding myself with people and becoming the average of those five people. Right. Yeah. How extreme did you push that? Did you like actually cut out like friends that, that you've had for years who were having more of a, let's say scarcity, mm-hmm. you know, complaining mindset and like cut yeah. them off entirely? Or how did you, yeah. was it a slow filter or are you like done? Slow filter, but okay. it was definitely abrupt boundaries. So okay. for certain friends, I let them fade. I wasn't reciprocal. Like if they invited me out, I didn't invite them back. And you just kind of understood that I was letting the friendship go. And we didn't really have to have a conversation. We both sort of understood. Um, There there were other people where it was more extreme, where I needed to set boundaries. Um, And I probably had to have one or two very uncomfortable conversations with people I loved. Um, because they're, they were so destructive that it wasn't productive to have them in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. That sucks. That is not something I would wish on anyone, but it ended up being necessary for me. Um, and then really the harder part was just uh, following my own rules. Like, okay, it's a Saturday and no one texted you. Why do you think they no one texted you? Because you got rid of all of the people that weren't good in your life. Right. And now you have to fill it with new people. So there was an awkward stage where I had to find these new people and slowly fill in the void that I had created. But it ended up being worth it because because you shift. That's the thing in life. You shift. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't the same person that I had been all those years ago. And your friends often think that you 
are the same and they don't always change with you. And that's okay. That's not always a bad thing. Sometimes you just agree to disagree. I, I didn't enjoy drinking and staying out late anymore. I wanted to work on my career. I wanted to invest in my skills and my art and my career and my business. Um, it wasn't fun for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it wasn't an abrupt, it happened over, I would say about five years. Okay. How did you find new, we'll call them positive friendships? Like, did you join, was it because of new, um, like groups you were a part of, or were you actively like searching out new people in new areas? How did, how did the new positive influences come into your life? Yeah, I joined everything. Okay. I joined every, I went to every meetup, every networking event, every community thing. I mean, it, it took a while. I definitely met a lot of people who weren't the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did my best to try and have as many influences in my life that I could have exposure to. Yeah. Um, and then the only thing that really can create friendship is time. Like you have to be able to invest in those over time and have relationships and also know yourself. So part of it was identifying who I was in those new circumstances. Okay. Uh, so that's how I did it is I would just go, I would introduce myself in different ways, try on this new skin, being this new positive person, right? Or, or abundant person. I shouldn't say positive because that can get annoying. Um, <laughs> you got to be real. Uh, yeah. But but also seeing what it felt like to be myself out in these environments where no one knew me. And putting myself in those uncomfortable situations. Um, and then seeing over time what's stuck. Mm-hmm. Who ends up showing up when act- things actually matter? Um, who ends up being a really good counsel or advisor on things? Who's a good ac- a career friend versus a life friend? Because um, those two are very different as well. Right. So experimentation from there. Yeah. So in 2014, you started your own consulting firm. Yes. What made you want to make the leap to start your own consulting firm? And were there, while you were doing that, were there like books you were reading or mentors you were reaching out to that helped you get that off the ground? Yes. Yes. So after graduate school, when I had ventured into marketing, I took a job at a marketing agency Mm -hmm. and I loved it. I was what's called a strategic planner. So um, if you've ever watched Mad Men, I was kind of like the person between Don Draper and the client guy, uh, kind of facilitating their relationship. And I got to work on some really amazing campaigns and I was learning a lot. But there there came a point where I stopped learning Mm -hmm. and I looked at my boss and I thought, I don't want to be him. And that was an indication to me that something needed to change. And so around that time, I was following a lot of. Oh goodness, this is going to be embarrassing, but I drank the whole like four hour work week Kool-Aid and the lifestyle design stuff and yeah. um, all the online business gurus. Like I, I was drinking that Kool-Aid hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I wanted, I wanted ownership of my life and I wanted to design a, a life that worked for me. And I didn't like the idea of a, a life by default. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. I knew I wanted to start my own company. I didn't know what I wanted it to be. And I had a really smart friend at the time. Um, her, her name is Vanessa. She actually, she runs science of people. She's actually one of the gurus, but we went to college together. So it was unrelated. And I called her up and I was like, I'm going to quit my job. And I was like all excited because she'd been in the business world forever. Mm-hmm. And she said, that's really stupid. 
<laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? Like, you did it and, you know, you're fine and you're super famous and really wealthy and doing all these great things. She's like, yeah, but like, I, I struggled a really long time. You have to struggle with a safety net. And so she recommended I take a side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work out all the kinks and figure out what my business was actually going to be because rightfully so I had no experience in business. Like I was a literature major with an academic background in psychology mm-hmm. who found her way accidentally into marketing. And here I am thinking that I know how to pitch clients and write proposals and price and do all, like what? So it was one of the best pieces of advice I'd gotten was don't quit your day job, but, um, treat your day job as your side hustle and mm-hmm. take your business seriously. And so that's when I started about six months of uh, nights and weekends and learning the art of uh, lead generation, client management, like playing around with things. And it wasn't until I had enough runway mm-hmm. that I actually made the jump and I quit and started my consulting firm. Okay. Yeah. And so while you were doing all that, were you still developing your skills as a writer and still developing that yes. career? Yes. So they, they to me were, were totally intertwined because marketing and business were really everything in life in my mind. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say this to a designer, but for me, everything revolves around words. Like you cannot function without words. Even what we're doing right now is words. And if I was better at my actual skill, I would be communicating much more clearly. Right. So that I always felt like you're, I was always improving whether it was, it didn't matter. For me, I wasn't ever a fiction writer. So Mm -hmm. for me, writing was about being understood and prompting an action. So those were the two outcomes um, that I was always judging myself by. So one has a very clear application in a business setting, right? How do I write an email that gets the client to respond? How do I uh, pitch someone that tells a story that actually makes someone want to buy into this thing and mm-hmm. hand me money. Like all of that to me was about writing and about words and communication and, and, and influence and all the same things that I was studying in marketing. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, being understood was how, how to write like a blog post, for example, and content, which was intricately linked with all the marketing stuff I was doing because content marketing was like the backbone of everything. <laughs> at right. this just in America and life with digital. So uh, it, it, it was all very, very connected. It, di- it didn't feel like two different worlds at all for me. Okay. So as, so as things evolved, what ultimately made you want to start the, your current venture? That seems mm. important. Yes. So I built a company I didn't like. Oh. And I found myself maybe uh, three years in looking at the life I had created for myself and um, thinking, what did you do? Mm-hmm. What, what did was you do? it? What was it about your company that you didn't like? I hated client management. I didn't feel like I was actually doing any real marketing. Okay. Um, I felt like the best way to, uh, I, I felt like the business model was highly leveraged in a way that I didn't like. So you're really dependent on other people and things out of your control, which just wasn't sustainable for me. And it was still very much based on my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and more than anything, uh, it, I, I'm a recovering perfectionist and your success or failure in consulting rests upon whether people like you. 
And that is like my kryptonite because here I am basically getting hits of dopamine for being liked. <laughs> like that's no way to, it, it wasn't healthy for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, wait, there was one more thing. Oh, and it killed my voice as a creator. So I had a really hard time. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about it now identifying as a writer, but I didn't while I was running my company. Mm-hmm. I was putting on the hat of, you know, psychological re- researcher, marketer, uh, entrepreneur. But I, I really rejected the label of creative because um, the people that were introduced to me as creatives were weird or than me, like or just weird. <laughs> you know, they like didn't. They were hipstery or they lived in Brooklyn or they had an identity of creativity mm-hmm. in what in in whatever that means in like a mainstream setting. Right. Like that you don't wash your hair that much or you don't care about money and you're not into personal development. And I very much cared about fitness and I had a stable relationship and I wanted to grow a business. So I was like, well, obviously, I'm not a creative. Mm-hmm. And. I actually had an intervention from our mutual friend, Shannon, who was like, you're a writer. And I was like, no, 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 that's what creative people do. Like, I'm skilled at writing. And she's like, no, 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 you're a writer. Like, you bleed writing. It, like, comes through you. You've been a writer your entire life. Like, you you spit things out that ideas come to your head that nobody's – you have a – writing is about your eyes, not about Mm -hmm. the words. And – She's like, you have different eyes. And I, it took me a really long time to, to internalize that and embrace it and be like, oh yeah, I don't have to look a certain way. Like I can wear sweater sets and pearls and still be a creative. <laughs> um, and I don't have to be, you know, difficult and dramatic all the time. Like I could, I could, I could like life. Like I wasn't unhappy. So I thought I couldn't right. be creative. Seriously. This is what right. I thought. Right. And, um, so you asked why I, I shuttered the company. So this was mm-hmm. part of the shift is that I, I lost my voice legitimately. Mm-hmm. I couldn't write. I was so consumed writing for clients and doing things by the book that I had lost the ability to play. I had lost the ability to create and I had, I felt like a piece of me was, was missing. And mm-hmm. so I put up that seems important.com to talk about some of this stuff and also just to give myself a place to play a place to fail and a bit of a sandbox. And so I started writing for for myself. I wrote about marketing and I wrote about a lot of the problems I saw in the industry. So it wasn't it wasn't totally disconnected, but the goal of it wasn't necessarily to build a business. Okay. That happened as a a, a bit of a happy accident. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. So how so I know in between some of this you also went to Seth Godin's all MBA training yes. so how does how did that integrate into what you're doing now mm. and and what yeah. was that experience like exactly in the timeline actually that I did it so yeah. when I was shuttering <laughs> my consulting firm it, it took a really long time because you have client contracts and you have to tie up a bunch of loose ends I had applied to Seth Godin's Alt MBA mm. I had built up that seems important into just really just articles that I was writing for myself and um, I got accepted and so I had this nice period of a pause to really focus on the curriculum. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the Alt MBA is a four week intensive program for, um, oh, it's hard to explain without giving it away because there's so much you're not supposed to tell, but, uh, <laughs> it's effectively all the things they don't teach you in an MBA program, like soft mm-hmm. skills. 
Um, and so I was learning things like how to ship and how to give feedback and um, asking a lot of more of the introspective questions um, on uh, on myself and what I wanted and my goals and things like that. So it was it was e- extremely influential into my next move because it had me take that seems important a lot more seriously mm-hmm. and stop thinking about it as this is just a thing I'm doing to no, 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 commit. You're going to write once a week. Like, don't write just when you feel like writing. Don't, th- you know, what's the Somerset quote? The inspiration. I only write when inspiration hits. Fortunately, it's 9 a.m. Yeah. every morning. <laughs> so, you know, taking, I think Alt MBA has a way of teaching you to take your art seriously mm-hmm. as a business. And that's actually the most respectful thing that you can do to your art. Um, otherwise, you keep it locked away and hoard it for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I learned how to be comfortable um, more publicly and write more and express myself more and figure out what my platform was and what things I had to say. Um, and so that all happened as I was building a bit of a following. And um, and in the MBA, I was able to look at, OK, who's following me? What problems do they have? How could I help them solve it? And that's where the latest venture came out of. Okay. So that's where the arena came from, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's the virtual co-working space. Oh, nice. So how is that set up then? I mean, it's it sounds self-explanatory being a virtual co-working space, but how do you wrangle people together to make it yeah. more of like a, like a co-working space? Totally. Totally. So the way um, it came about is, I was getting a lot of emails from entrepreneurs about uh, and content creators, creatives about uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered in getting on the phone with them or emailing with them was they never a- actually had a marketing problem. They had a self-doubt problem. They actually mm-hmm. knew exactly what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd read all the books. They'd taken a million conferences uh, or courses. They They knew. And so my hypothesis was that if I surrounded them with people like them, with coworkers, so they weren't just in their head all day, we yeah. could actually grow their businesses. And so that, that was sort of the impetus behind how it got started. And the way it worked and the reason I made it virtual is everyone is all over the United States. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have the advantage like I do of being in New York where you, you know, step outside and everyone's got a business. A lot of these people are isolated. So the way we function is we have about three different ways in which you can collaborate with other people like you. So one is personal introductions. I function as sort of a matchmaker mm-hmm. in building a community. So if I know, um, you know, you have a 3D animation company and you are trying to grow your client base um, and you really suck at sales, I will introduce you to someone who's great with sales and um, make sure that you two connect. Or if I discover two people are in Colorado, I'll make sure that they connect in Colorado. So we do these personal introductions so you have relationships. Um, And then we do what are called virtual events. So we will jump on Zoom or Skype Mm -hmm. and uh, have happy hours, just like a real co-working space. Um, And we'll come together and we'll talk about business, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about um, frustrations, we'll talk about brags, we'll bring up topics. and uh, we also will put together uh, different types of events in, in addition to happy hours. So like brainstorms, like one of the things that's missing, if you've if anyone here has ever worked alone, 
<laughs> is that you often get stuck in your head or I, I or like me, you use your spouse and mm-hmm. your spouse, it sucks at brainstorm. Like I'll, I'll come home and I'll be like, Brian, I had this amazing idea. Let me tell you my genius. And I'll, you know, verbal vomit all over him. Then he'll look yeah. at me and be like, Oh, that sounds good. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that is not how this works. <laughs> you have to, no, no, no. You're supposed to spitball back and you have to take what I gave you and you have to throw it and then I build on it. And then eventually it turns into something different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that doesn't work when your stuff is not in your world. He's just like, I don't, I don't know half the words you used. I don't know what you just said, but you sound really smart. So. You know, so I wanted to create a space where people could have coworkers that they could spitball ideas with. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of those kind of things in our virtual events. So we have a, a whole slew of types of them. Um, and that's been one of the biggest value adds. Like we will focus on your business. We'll help you where you're stuck. Um, but we're, we're not necessarily accountability group. Like you're an adult. You will figure it out on your own. There's no curriculum. Yeah. Okay. And then the last way is uh, we have a Slack channel. Um, where we uh, ask dumb questions. So oh, okay. it's a place where um, a lot of times in business, especially if you're not, if you don't have a business background, if you're like a lot of us who studied something else, you have become or you've developed a level of expertise in your realm, but you've skipped mm-hmm. some of the basics, but you don't want anyone to know you've mm-hmm. skipped the basics. So um, it's really embarrassing when you're like, oh, what's a PNL? Or like, oh, uh, what should I do about SEO? Or, you know, these things <laughs> that you're supposed to know because you're a business owner, but mm-hmm. all of us are sort of pretending. So yeah. this is an area where we can have those kind of conversations and go, oh, shit, me too. Like, yeah, I totally don't know what that is. And I pretend like I do in public. But here I'm going to tell you I have no idea what that is. Um, and so it's a nice way for us to collaborate. And eventually someone will know the answer. Um, yeah. Because we have a diversified background uh, of different expertises, but yeah, so that's that's those are the ways in which we we all um, are involved. In oh, great! And that sounds so. That Slack channel alone sounds amazing because I know that there have been many times in my life, actually nowadays, where I do pretend to know what I'm talking about, then I have to go back and like Google it later, <laughs> um, and go, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's one of those things where people, I don't think I've caught on. But when I really don't know what's going on, I just kind of smile and nod and just agree with everything yeah. and then go back later and like Google and go, oh, that's that's what I was agreeing to. I made that mistake. <laughs> yep. Been there. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So as you're helping people grow their businesses, what is some bad advice that you see all the time being passed around? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, my God. That's such a good question. Um I would say number one is, oh, my God, take this course. Oh, my gosh, you have to read this. Mm-hmm. I think anytime someone defaults to giving you someone else's expertise, um, we're coming up a slippery slope because the, the advice that's being given right now is to outsource your thinking and your gut to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes from a good place. You know, we're indoctrinated in a school system that says, here are the rules. Here's what you're being graded by. Learn this, study for the test, and you will get an A. And this idea that business is similar is very destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, business is not at all uh, a one-size-fits-all or templatizable. And I think that right now there is this obsession with finding a template 
that works that you could copy and use for your business and get the same results as someone else. And a lot of people will come in and be like, well, here's what I did and you can do it too. It's like a giant pyramid scheme. And I, I, I don't know that any, like there's some that are actually malicious, but for, for the most part, a lot of people are well-meaning. They just want to share their experience, but it, it takes away, I think the most important part of business, which is you needing to hone your skill of paying fucking attention mm-hmm. to your market to market forces like if something you're selling isn't selling for example you need to be smart enough to go is it a bad product is it the wrong market is it positioned in act incorrectly or is it the pricing like there are so many things that are that you need to be paying attention to that a course will never be able to tell you you have to have your eyes open and if you're constantly head in books trying to read and find the answers outside of your business, mm-hmm. you're going to fail because the answers are in the market. Like oftentimes you just need to call up the person and say, Hey, why didn't you buy this? <laughs> People <laughs> love to talk. They will tell you why they didn't buy this. Yes, they will. So that's, that's the part that I think it gets really, really dangerous. Okay. With, so with the things you have worked on and the different transitions you made from one career to the next, how did you approach those times when you were fearful and how did you ultimately move past them? Tequila helps a lot. Excellent. Excellent. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes with how I've dealt with fear and the, it, it manifests itself different ways. So I am really, I have high anxiety. So my fear tends to be, socially and uh, uh, business-wise rewarded because it turns into this like anxious energy to get stuff done and be productive. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually very destructive. And so the way that I've handled it that has been helpful is actually leaning into the fear. And I know that sounds like one of those woo-woo things, so I'm going to explain what that means. Um, so for me, I had to determine the difference and everyone's different. So I'm sorry, there's no hard and fast rule on this. But like, what is fear that is, oh my God, you absolutely have to go in a different direction. Like this is the wrong choice and your fear is telling you this is the wrong choice versus, oh, I'm just really scared because I'm out of my comfort zone, but uh, this is definitely the right thing for me and it's going to stretch me in a good way. Mm -hmm. And you cannot know the answer until you do the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when I say leaning into it, like it is being comfortable with the discomfort of making mistakes publicly and falling on your face. So like having your parents not understand what you do and, you know, maybe asking them for money if you need to, or going to a party where you have to explain what you do and fumbling all over it and feeling like shit, maybe I should have just gone to law school. Why am I such an idiot? Um, you know, leaning into those moments where you aren't totally secure and, mm-hmm. The more you do them, the more it develops that thick skin of like, oh, right, nothing happened. Like, I was fine. I was a little mortified. It sucks. And that guy was there and he was cute. And now he thinks I'm weird. But okay, like, we'll live. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also exploring it. Like, I think for me, journaling definitely helped. Reading helps. Um, hearing about other people's stories and recognizing, like, you're not special, even though you are special. But um, knowing that like everybody who you think has this perfect linear trajectory doesn't, mm-hmm. they're just telling you one version. 
And the more you listen and learn how people got from point A to point, you know, G, you'll find out that nothing was linear and you're Mm -hmm. not alone. They all went through the dips that you're having. Mm -hmm. Throughout your career, what has been the best investment you've ever made? Ooh, that's a really good question. Oh, that's hard. Um, you know, I, I took a course called earn one K when I was just, I had finished graduate school and I was working in an agency and I knew nothing about business. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was the mindset shift that helped me understand business as something that wasn't evil. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it, it framed it in a way that, um, you're selling a solution to someone's problem and that your goal is to identify problems and come up with very real solutions. And no one had ever explained business to me that way mm-hmm. ever. ever. And that was worth every penny because I just saw it as something that had such functional utility in the world. I was like, well, if all we're doing is solving problems here, this seems like a great capitalistic <laughs> society. And it sort of introduced um, my, uh, I stopped being intimidated by business. Mm-hmm. And I started being excited by it. So that mindset shift was really important. So I would say that that course did it for me. Oh, great. Was that the Ramit Sethi yeah. Yeah. course? Okay. I also took that course years oh. ago. Yeah. Absolutely Typing fantastic. is everything. It, yeah. yeah. It, I thought it was really good. Um, I thought it was one of his better courses. I don't know if all of them are, but this one was fantastic. Yeah. I haven't taken his other courses either, but you're right. I loved that one. And I, I'm still on his email list and I dip in. He's like another one of those people that I follow that can I only read every once in a while. And so I'll like suddenly open all of his emails at once and like dip into his writing. And I, I like his tell it like it is type of mentality. Same, same. Yeah. yeah. So with everything that you've done and experienced, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? Yeah. Not every opportunity is an obligation. I had nice. a store tell me that and it relates to inbox booty calls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Bring it around full circle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, Marga, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I appreciate it. If the audience would like to read more about your work and see what you're working on, what's the best way they can do that? Yes. Go to thatseemsimportant.com. Also, uh, reach out to me on Twitter. I am not good at it, but I promise I'm getting better and I'm trying to. So if you tweet at me, Margo Aaron, um, I will say hello back. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you liked this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again and have a great day.